Well, good morning. My name is William, and I'm one of the elders uh, here at the Mountain Church, and it's my privilege to be able to bring this text in uh, John chapter 4 uh, to you guys. So many of you guys uh, who have been with us know that we've been going through a sermon series through the book of John that uh, I can't believe, I think, what are we in now, week 9? It seems crazy that we're already in week 9. It felt like a couple weeks ago I was just opening this book, um, talking about that first chapter of, of uh, John essentially laying out this vision that he had for the book, what was his purpose for writing it, and he had this central crux that he wrote um, the entirety of the book on, which was that it was written for belief. And over the last few weeks, or seven weeks, we have gone through uh, the uh, first three chapters of John and kind of seen and, and seen John's purpose and the way he lays out his scripture. We know, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that John's is not necessarily a chronological order of scriptures, right? He definitely has a purpose in what he writes and the order in which he chooses to write them. And so um, as we've gone through this, we learned about a character, John the Baptist, um, to kind of start the book off, and we got to see John's ministry, and then moved into um, this passage that uh, Daniel spent a few weeks on uh, going through, which was where uh, John shared an interaction that Jesus had with Nicodemus, and he was a uh, righteous man, somebody who uh, would have known scripture, somebody who would have had a background in faith, um, so it was, so he kind of had that. And then, uh, then we had kind of this contrast last week, which was John the Baptist. So John goes back to speaking about John the Baptist and kind of shares what it looks like to have like a good testimony in Christ, somebody who is willing to essentially empty themselves and, and, and pointing towards that vision of emptying yourself so that you can have more of Christ um, in you. And that is going to be what leads to kind of that fulfillment in life. And so I think it's interesting that as we go from these two stories, this righteous man who, who Jesus kind of calls out on his um, belief by his own righteousness and, 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 and kind of challenges him on his thoughts and the way he views things, into a story about John the Baptist who is kind of doing things right and, and a good example, to now he goes into another example. And many of us know this story, if you've been raised in the, the church at all, and uh, it's Jesus uh, talking to a woman from Samaria. So what we know is that at some point in time, and like I said, it's not chronological, so it's not necessarily that he went straight from Nicodemus to this woman in Samaria, but what John is doing is he's painting a picture. So what he's telling us is that he's, he starts out chapter four, essentially explaining how Jesus got to where he's, where he's at. So if you want to, or if you can, please go ahead and open with me to John chapter four, verse one, and I'm going to stumble over my words. So I'm just, I hope you guys have some grace with me as I read this. Um, you know, you get done singing and then you get all nervous to get up here in front of you guys because you guys are all staring at me. And uh, no, I actually prefer if you look at me. So no, I'm just kidding. Thank you. I'm trying to lighten the mood, guys. Here we go. All right. Number f chapter four. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, so he's kind of contrasting us. He's getting out of us out of this passage that we heard last week with John. He said, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So uh, it's just kind of a statement that, that uh, 
that uh, John is throwing in there to let people know, like, Jesus was not the one actually baptizing people. I think it's a cool, it's an interesting fact that he throws in here because we just hear about this term of baptism, but what John is saying is it was actually the disciples who were doing this, and I think that this, uh, keep in mind this statement because it's going to impact where we go with the text as we dive later in, okay? So just remember that, that statement in parentheses, that Jesus was not the one baptizing, but that his disciples were. So he left Judah and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his two sons. So one thing I want to clarify is a lot of people think that it was strange that Jesus would have walked through this Samaritan town. It's actually not. It was the shortest way to get from where they were going to where they, or from where they were to where they wanted to go. So it was not out of the question because a lot of people will like read this story and go like, oh, Jesus really had like this crazy plan. Like he was going out of the way somewhere where he normally wouldn't go and, and all this kind of stuff. That's not actually the case. This would have been a very normal route for them to go on. So, so he goes and he says, near the field that Jacob had given his son, Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So the sixth hour is important for us to know that nobody would have been going to the well at the sixth hour. So that is important. So Jesus goes out there. He's sitting at a time of the day. People would have already gone, come and gotten their water for the day. It probably would have been a little too warm. They wouldn't have come out and wanted to come get this uh, water at this time. And then it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So we have Jesus here who's just on a long journey, right? He gets to this well. The well is still there to this day, by the way. If you, you can look it up. It's just a little tiny well. And he's sitting at this well. And this woman walks up and he asks her for a drink of water. Seems pretty normal, right? Doesn't seem like that far-fetched that a, that a man would just ask somebody for a drink of water. And she, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So it's interesting. What John is really highlighting here is he wants us to start to see the picture of what this situation really entails. So first of all, you have the Samaritans. The Samaritans in the Jewish eyes were like, I don't know a better term to use, so I'm going to use this. They, were like, they called them like half-breeds. They didn't see them as like on their level because what the Samaritans were is they were, there was like during the time of exile and bringing them back in and, and all this kind of stuff, the Samaritans were kind of left there and then they, they, they uh, started to marry and have, um, you know, have uh, kids and, and these, the uh, Samaritan population grew, but they weren't true Jews. So in their eyes, like when it, when it talked about in Jewish law to not associate with people who are not Jewish, they were the line. Nope, you might be half, but you're not all full. So we, we can't really, we don't even see you as Jewish. And so the Samaritans kind of become like their own people. And so when she points out, how is it that you were asking uh, from me, a, a woman from Samaria, she's actually diving even deeper because it would have been pretty inappropriate for a man to ask a woman for water when she's just out at a well by herself. So Jesus is kind of, breaking these two like big stigmas. First of all, he's talking to uh, a Samaritan and not just talking to her, but he's asking her for a glass of water. 
And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is really pointing out something here. And, and what's cool about Jesus is Jesus always like, he's always got a message, you know? There's always something that Jesus is trying to drive home. And so when he starts this statement with her, what he's really getting at, and I'm going to pull up a text here. You guys see it? Yep. Sweet. All right. So Zechariah 14.8, there is, there is this verse so great. And what Jesus is doing is he's pointing to this verse. He says, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. And it shall continue in summer and in winter. So what is Jesus really starting to say here? Jesus is, you know, like what Jesus does so well is he starts to build on this idea of water. He's like, oh, she talked about water and I asked her for water and she just like bit, she bit my line. So now I'm going to start talking about who I am. And what he's doing is he's pointing to this idea that there is something better than this water that she can pull from a well to quench her thirst. And so she starts for, he starts foreshadowing with that with her. And so she starts, she, uh, she wants to ask some questions of that. So I don't think the intent is that she's supposed to know what he's talking about right now. So we don't want to read this and think, oh man, she's really dumb. She doesn't get it. That's not the case. Jesus is trying to show her something and teach her something. So she said, the woman said to him in verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water. So what is, she what is she focusing on? The tangible, what's in front of her, what she can see. That's all she understands what Jesus is talking about. She's just getting at this grasp of just going, I don't understand that there's a living water. I don't get what that means. It's more like in her mind, she's thinking about like what we think about when we watch Indiana Jones, right? That there's some sort of eternal water spring that we can drink a cup from, you know, drink a cup of it, and we get like youth. It comes back to us. That's what she's really starting to think through. This is not some sort of spiritual eternal thing for her. This is like the uh, fountain of youth is what she's looking for, right? Man, show me where to get this. You don't have a bucket. How are you going to get it out of there? This well would have been really deep, by the way. So it's like she's kind of like processing through this. Wait, living water? Where is it? I want eternal youth. That sounds great. And then she asks him this question. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? Now, many of you guys know, and hopefully if you know your Old Testament, Jacob um, was obviously like one of the fathers of Israel, right? And what she's getting at is she's essentially asking him what our modern day text or what we would say is, who are you? There's skepticism. Who the heck are you? Come here telling me that there's living water? Who do you think you are? Some sort of big shot? That's what she's saying to him. We have, to, we have to understand that we can read between the lines a little bit on text like this, understanding their cultural context. She's essentially saying, who are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. So she's like equating this place to some sort of like sacred ground, right? Jacob drank here. Not only did he drink here, but his sons drank here. And if that's not cool enough, his livestock drank here. I'd have gone in reverse order, but you know what I mean? You want to build your climax, but that's all right. So she doesn't, she's still not getting this, right? She's still seeing this picture of Jesus offering something tangible that she can like get right now and be fulfilled. And Jesus said to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I 
will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus starts to now draw his picture a little bit clearer, right? He's saying there's something different. You drink this water, what happens after you drink water? You get hot and you drink water again. You're gonna continually get thirsty. Jesus is like using a metaphor here, right? He's starting to try and get her to see. And so what we see now is that she still kind of doesn't quite understand what's happening in verse 15. It says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So right away, what does she jump back to? Man, that'd be so cool to not have to come out here at the sixth hour and get water. I would love that. That sounds so good. To never thirst again? Oh, man. Think of all the activities I could do, right? I mean, right now I'm thirsty. I was going to tell you guys right now, my mouth's getting dry. So I'm feeling this passage. Like, I'm with her. I'm with the Samaritan woman. Man, give me this water. That sounds great. Give it to me. And Jesus does something so interesting here. He said, go call your husband come here. Very interesting change of events here, right? Jesus is talking about all this water, and she's like, give it to me. And then what does he do? Hey, go get your husband. Now, Jesus didn't change his mind and think like, oh, man, I'm talking to this woman. I better, like, I better do this appropriately, get her husband over here. That's not what Jesus is doing. But what Jesus is doing is he's going to answer her question with what she needs to hear. She's not getting the idea of what this water is from his analogy with water. So Jesus is now going to dive in to the biggest thing that she needs to hear. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. So you kind of start to all of a sudden feel like this. Like, I don't know about you guys. When I read this, I feel some sort of tension, right? She's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know. Like, how would that make you feel in that moment if you're that Samaritan woman? Ooh, wait a minute. Yeah, how do you know? What are you getting out of here, man? This is weird. I probably feel a little uncomfortable. I don't know. I've never been a lady, so I don't know. But there's a man at a well and starts asking me about my husband and then says, hey, you don't have one. Like, hold up. How do you know that, right? You've been stalking me. You're watching me. Like, what's going on here? So it would be a very common thing for her to kind of feel a little awkward at this moment, right? And so Jesus says this to her. But then what he does is he goes a step further. He says, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he is pointing out one, two, two really big things. This woman has sin in her life. Jesus says that you are thirsting, right? He's telling her that she is thirsting for something. And if you have this, you will thirst no longer. And what Jesus is pointing to her and showing, starting to show her is that your thirst, that the thirst that I'm talking about is not the thirst that you're thinking of, that you're trying to quench. It's a different kind of thirst, there is some sort of sin in your heart, a passion in your heart, ma'am, 
that is driving you away from understanding who God is. And in this moment, Jesus calls out her biggest sin. You've had five husbands. You know your law. Even the Samaritans had the Pentateuch, and they abided by it. You should not have gone past husband three. That's what he's telling her at first. So by saying she's had five, the law was three, and then maybe you shouldn't be married anymore, right? That's what he's trying to get at here. So three, three was, should have been your max, but you've had five. And then what does he dive into next? And right now, your newest man in your life is not your husband, and essentially what's implying here is that she would have been having relations with this man. And so Jesus is essentially pointing out a second sin in her life. She is not living in accordance with the law that she should be married to this man. So Jesus essentially goes from meeting this woman, just simply asking her for a drink, and then in about five sentences of dialogue, goes to calling out her biggest sin. And she's sitting there going, whoa, 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 I just came to get water. What happened? And so what you can see here is that when he says that to her, her reaction shows us, and I think is really like indicative to how probably most of us would respond in this situation. She kind of tells him, she's like, sir, I perceive that you are some sort of prophet. Most scholars say that there's probably some sort of like sarcasm in this statement. She is equating that he knows something. And like some people will say, oh, she's equating this to the messianic prophet that they, they would have, uh, the Samaritans would have believed in, but it was just, they just knew somebody was coming. They didn't really know all the signs and, and wonders and all that kind of stuff behind it. So she essentially kind of like makes some sort of like accusatory mocking statement where she's like, oh man, you know a lot of stuff. You must be some sort of prophet. And then what she does and what kind of helps us understand this is that he's building a claim and now she starts to get it. It's starting to sink in what he's doing to her. And so she comes in and she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the only place where people ought to worship. So what is she getting at here? What she's saying is that the fathers of the Samaritan people worshiped on Mount Gerizim, right? And if you remember your Old Testament uh, uh, uh Scriptures, you would know that that's one of the mountains where they stood uh, opposite of each other and they yelled blessings and curses at each other. Uh, Hopefully, if you don't remember that, go read that story. It's cool. Um, So they yell. So the Samaritan people worship here. They worship at the foot of this mountain. And then what she's contrasting here is she knows that Jesus is a Jew. So she's telling him, hey, we worship here. You know, we're here. We're we're doing our thing. You guys say it's got to be back in Jerusalem at the temple. And that's where you think people have to worship. So she's starting to contrast the two beliefs here. And she's trying to like start debating some theology with him. And what's interesting here is it's a really big deflection. Because what did he just do? Called out her biggest sin. And what does she do? Kind of like makes light of the situation and then starts debating theology with him. That's way easier to do than deal with your sin, right? It's way easier to talk about scriptures and debate like, oh, but you say we have to worship here and worship here. And what Jesus does is he just shuts her down in this moment. Because what he says is he says, verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what, or you worship what you do not know. 
and we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. So what is Jesus getting at here? Is he trying to set up some sort of like racial bias? Is he trying to set up anything like that? Absolutely not. What Jesus is trying to show her is like, okay, you want to bait theology? I'll show you what the truth is. What Jesus is starting to say is that he says, listen, you're starting to argue about something that has no bearing on what I'm talking about. It does not matter if you were at the temple, and it will not matter if you were on this mountain. What will matter is that there's going to be a time and a place coming. I'm, he's foreshadowing like what his, the events of his life are going to be, the releasing of the Spirit. And he's saying that it's not going to be at a specific place that you have to come in contact with the Father. It is going to be opened up, and it's going to be opened up to everyone. And so what he gets at in verse 22 is he's pointing out this idea, you will worship what you do not know, or you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. And when he talks about salvation being from the Jews, what he is essentially saying is he says, listen, like what I said earlier, the Samaritans had the Pentateuch. They, they, they knew the first five books of the Bible. They had them. So they knew this understanding of the law. They knew that there was going to be some sort of uh, prophet that came after Moses, but that was all they knew. They just had that. And what Jesus is getting at here is, listen, you, you stopped too soon. There were prophets. There were people who came after, who told and fore, foreshadowed and, and, and said what was going to come next when I come. You have to have those writings. You have to know and read those texts to be able to see who I am when I start to come. And like I said, going back to this passage in Zechariah, he says that you will... Uh, you will see that there is this water flowing out. And he's not talking about water. He's talking about the spirit flowing out from the temple to all people. And so he essentially says salvation comes from the Jews is he's getting at more of the text, the prophets. We understand um, the signs that we are supposed to be looking for. And then he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, this is one of those famous phrases. If you've been in the church for a while, you know this idea of worshiping in spirit and truth. And this is probably something that you've maybe like said in your lifetime. And what, what's so cool is well, I love studying scriptures and I love, I love having my preconceived notions busted. That's my favorite thing about studying scriptures. I love it because I like to think that I know something and then I love it to get rattled. Okay, and this one rattled, this one got me this week, is in most of the commentaries, most everything I studied, this phrase like spirit and truth is kind of like one of the minor points in this passage. All he's doing is summing up what's going to happen. He's just summing up his main point there. He said, listen, it's not going to be about where you're at, worshiping at the temple, worshiping at the foot of this, being at some sort of cool well where Jacob's cattle drank. None of that matters. What actually matters is that you are going to get an opportunity to worship God the Father in spirit. So the Holy Spirit's coming down to us, and the truth will be revealed through who I am, and I meaning Jesus, right? That's what he is just getting at. He's just summarizing a point. There's going to be a time where it's no longer about the place, but it's going to be about the spirit dwelling in you. And that is a revelation that is coming through my fulfillment. That's all he's saying. He's just re-emphasizing the point that he already made to her. And the woman said to him, 
I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So this is kind of that culminating point of their conversation. So they hit this kind of like, you got you to think, like she's really at this like climax of understanding. This guy is claiming to be this, this coming uh, prophet after Moses, because remember, that's where she would have stopped her learning. So she would have known this. This is the guy that's coming after that. So just then the disciples came back, because remember, they had gone to get, thank you, Phil, food. I'm glad one person's listening. All right, here we go. So they came back to get food. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? I think this is a cool point. The disciples come back and they don't question what Jesus is doing, right? They start watching. They're like, okay, see what you're doing here. And so I love what happens next. So the woman left her jar and went away into town and she said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, one really cool fact that kind of gets overlooked here is the first thing it says there is she leaves her water jug. What we start to see is we start to see a change in the Samaritan woman right away. The water jug would have represented like life to her. She needed, she needed to be sustained by this. You saw it in the way she talked earlier. Man, like, with, like needing water is like this big deal. I need it. So to leave like one of your main utensils for everyday life behind at this well and take off and go back to town so you can spread this news about this man who told you everything about your life, essentially called out your sin. It's a huge deal. And it's cool because the, the disciples are watching this happen. And it obviously made an impact because John writes it down, right? Everything John writes is for belief. And he says... Or so they went out of the town and were coming to him, so coming to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And this is my favorite part. The disciples come off looking so great in this. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. I just love this scene. Daniel and I were talking about this earlier. I just, I, there's just something about, like, I love some of the liberties that you can take without compromising scripture is, you know, you get sent out to go get food. And I know it's not just like going to Safeway. It would have been like a little journey to go get some food, right? And then they come back and they're like, hey, Jesus, like, you sent us out for food. Go ahead. Like, you need to eat something. And he's like, no, I already got food. Something better. Really? Didn't you tell us to, Bartholomew, <laughs> didn't you say Jesus wanted food? He's like, yeah, man, he did. And they're like, oh, man, what the heck? Why? Then why did you send us? Jesus, though, is so good that he takes these, like, such simple things and just, it just uses them to, like, show his goodness and to show his glory and to show his holiness. And what he's, what he's showing them in this moment is that this is a teaching moment, and I'm not worried about food. Yeah, I might have been hungry before, but right now there's something more important going on here. And I can teach through what you guys are asking me. 
And his statement of my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He is showing right now the crux of what he's trying to accomplish with this Samaritan woman. Not only is he trying to like teach the Samaritan woman, but he is also trying to teach his disciples in, in a manner that they can follow. And he says, do you not say there is yet four months and then comes the harvest? All that Jesus is really saying in that statement is, don't you guys look sometimes and just say like, we still need to wait about four months for the harvest and like we're not in season right now. And so it's something that you always have to wait for. You got to wait for the time to be right. That's all he's really getting at here. So don't you guys say before the harvest, you got to wait till it grows and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So what is Jesus telling them? Hey, listen, you're not waiting for a season anymore. A season's here. If you were just take your eyes off of what we're doing for two seconds and look up, you would see that the field is ready to be harvested. And then he says another statement, verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For there the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. So Jesus is starting to show a contrast between these two roles. There is a role where somebody is going to come in and sowing means just getting the harvest ready and planting seeds, right? And then he's saying, and then another one is going to come in and reap. So he's kind of, he's showing that there's two different roles here. And then what I love here in verse 38 is Jesus gives them kind of like a, a, a statement that they get to hold on to. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So what Jesus is pointing out, it's just all kind of like meant to like flow together. The, the harvest is ready. Somebody already sowed. Something is already ready to be harvested. So now my role is to send you and I am going to send you to reap what has already been sowed. People have paved away. And then he starts getting into this. And what he's alluding to is that there are these, that there were prophets before him, including John, right? John, and he talks about how John prepared the way for Christ. And then all the prophets before him, all the major and minor prophets that we see in scripture prepared this way. And so like they, they, were, they were turning the soil, getting it ready for Jesus to come and, and sow this final seed. And then he said, and I love this piece, and uh, uh, I want to go back to 36, sorry. And already the one who reaps is receiving his wages for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Another key piece that we are going to jump into, um, but I think it's great that he's showing that in those two different roles that there is a joy that is binding of them. And then so when he gets to 38, he's showing them that there is joy in the act of reaping, Okay. And then when he gets to 39, it says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And he told me all that I ever did. So that simple phrase, he told me all that I ever did, that was all that John needed to highlight in saying that they believed that testimony. I think that's really, this is a really cool thing. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves 
And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, we're going to end there. I know Daniel said last week that I was going to preach all of chapter 4, but he's crazy. So I'm going to stop there. And I know that's not the natural heading of where it seems like it should end, but it's a good ending spot for us. So when we really think about what this text is saying, there's a lot in there. Do you guys see that? There's a lot of stuff in here. And I'm just going to say, here's the beauty about books like this and the book of John is I could, and we could probably do an entire sermon series on this passage because there are so many different areas and different ways that I could take this passage and that we could uh, study a little deeper. But what I want to do is I want us to understand that there is kind of like this, this driving force. So one verse I want to point out, first of all, is Jeremiah 2.13. And this goes back to that living water piece, right? So what is he getting as he's, or what is he trying to dive into? And what Jesus is starting to show people is he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves and broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what is Jesus really like getting at by referencing himself as living water? What he's starting to say is that what's happening here is they've forsaken the living water. I'm the living water. My father is the living water. But y'all have turned away from that and you start to like make these things, like try to find happiness and build these things and store up this happiness that you think you can create. So he's using the metaphor of like uh, storing up water. Now, if you know anything about water that's stored in a cistern that sits too long and it might leak and stuff like that, water's going to get nasty. And what it gets stored in is going to get gross. You're probably going to get a line like, I hate to admit it, but like on my shower, like sometimes you get that little like nasty mold, right? It's gross, okay? It's not good. That's what he's talking about. Like you try to store up this stuff for yourself and like you think about it with the passage here, the Samaritan woman, which she's storing up husbands. I mean, it's getting crazy. But that's what, that's what we're getting at here. He's trying to, Jesus is, by calling himself as living water, it's just like this is gonna be this joy eternal that comes out from my holiness spread and transferred to you. That you don't have to look to like these worldly things to try and find joy and happiness. You don't have to try and store something up to like collect all this stuff because what's gonna happen is what we see in the prophet Jeremiah where he says that they're gonna become broken. They're not gonna hold that water. It's gonna get moldy. It's gonna get nasty. This is what you have committed and this is this evil. And so Jesus is really pointing this out to her. So we dive into our next question that says, what does the text mean? Okay, so we've read through it all. We've seen that there's a lot in here. But what I want to do is I want to point us back to what I think is the important piece to remember. So do you all remember this verse? John 20, 30 through 31. At the beginning of our sermon series and what the sermon series is titled, whenever you see it up here, is that we wrote that, or we see that John wrote that now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the question is, why is this story in here for our belief? How does this help us believe better? Well, I think there's a couple areas in which we can talk about. And the first one I think that is really cool, and I suggest you go, back, you go look at it at another time, is I think one of, the, one of the biggest areas is Acts chapter uh, 8. Excuse me, Acts chapter 8. So if you just write that down. Um, but what I, essentially what I'll give you the, the brief uh, 
synopsis of it is, is it's this story about this explosion um, in this region with the Samaritan people in the early church. And what we know is that Philip goes there and there's this explosion of converts and believers. And the person who gets sent there is Peter and the apostle John. And I think it's really cool that we get to see this because, you know, like I said, when we first, in the first chapter when we preached this, we said we believe it is the Apostle John who wrote this. John would have remembered what Jesus said at that well, and he would have seen the events taking place in Acts, this explosion of the church, and it would have dawned on him, and he would have remembered, you guys are going to reap what has already been sown. What did Jesus do? He went in there and he laid a foundation talking to this Samaritan woman. This Samaritan woman builds like a foundation of people believing. And then that's all we really hear about it. But then we realize that after Christ is crucified and raised, and we have these missionaries that go out, Philip goes there and this big explosion in the church happens. And John goes there to see what's going on. And he gets to see this firsthand played out. So how is this written for our belief? John has essentially shown us that what Jesus said came true. When Jesus spoke, he was essentially prophesying about what was happening here. And he said, there's going to be an explosion and you guys are going to see it. Something that you did not work for in the act of sowing, you guys are going to see the benefits of that in the fruitfulness of the church as you come back to disciple. And I think it's so cool because then what I think that this passage really gets at the heart of is that there is joy in reaping. Jesus is essentially says, right, in verse 36, the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. There is joy found in the work that the disciples did after Jesus, right? Jesus put in the hard work. He put in the, the time with this Samaritan woman. And then from that, the disciples got to see the fruits of that labor. So then if that's really why this is written for us to believe, then I think we dive into our next question. How do we naturally resist? Now, hopefully you guys are already thinking in your heads how we naturally resist this. But the way I see us naturally resisting this is, is kind of twofold. I think we naturally resist because we don't really want to get to that part of reaping. Reaping takes a lot of work still. And there's this idea that sometimes we want credit for all the things that we do. So to think that somebody did the work in front of us, eh, I don't know if I like that. I want to have credit for what I've done. We don't want to give Jesus the credit for the work that he is already moving and, and shaking in people and the, the people that have worked in front of us. So I think we naturally resist it in that way first. And I think that we naturally resist Jesus' method of discipleship. Jesus doesn't just do things for no purpose. And John's not going to write something down for no purpose. And so I think one of the ways we naturally resist is we naturally resist in the way that Jesus disciples people, especially people that he just meets. What does Jesus do? 
tells her there's something better, and then calls out her sin. I don't know about you guys, but I've read a lot of books that say that's a big no-no. Make sure they know Jesus loves them first. Yeah, he does. But what does that mean? Why is that important? And what Jesus is getting at, especially when we go back to that Jeremiah text, is he said, listen, your water's leaking. Your pipes are bursted. This is not good, and let me show you how. Let's open the crawl space, and we'll see. And only when you see your depravity can you see why the goodness of what I offer is so good. How do we naturally resist this? I don't want to do that. Don't show me what's in the attic, because then I don't ever have to call it out. Hey, don't you remember that verse, William, speak, speak uh, truth in love? Yeah, I do. But make sure you understand the first part of that is truth. We don't like that. And I think we don't like it because we don't want to be the Samaritan woman. I don't want my sin called out, so if I don't do it, nobody will do it to me, Right? We don't like it. We want to fight it. And we don't want to go that step further. We, just, we like to attribute ourselves to that sower seed, right? Like, I, I always love that phrase. It's just like, you know, you go talk to somebody, and you kind of have like that little, like, small interaction, and you just happen to go, and Jesus loves you, by the way. And then you walk away. And then you're like, oh, man, I wish I could have shared more. And that somebody, like, what's that phrase somebody always says to you? Oh, you never know what seed you sown. What a cop-out. I do that all the time. I'm not looking at you guys. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. This is really easy for me to say. And I can walk away feeling pretty good. Like, man, I told him Jesus loved him. Now, God, you do your work with that. No. What a cop-out. There is more that we can be doing. So how is Jesus the hero? How did he accomplish or do the things we naturally resist? Jesus gave us a roadmap, a path, an example that we can follow. We don't have to apologize for what Jesus did. Jesus came and he called the world to repentance. Right? He called people sins. When he talked to Nicodemus, he called out his sins. When he talked to the rich young ruler, he called out his love of money. And it wasn't because Jesus despised people and wanted to push them away, but he saw their biggest sin that was separating them from Christ and from God. And he said, listen, you need to turn away from that and see me as more precious. And in that, you will have a living water, a spring that never ends of joy that will fill your soul. Jesus came and did the work. He did the hard part. Plowing a field is the hard part. He did the work. He died on the cross and rose again, defeating death so that we can stand in front of people speaking that truth that he said. We have the spirit dwelling in us. 
to be able to speak truth to people, unashamed, unabashful, because we know that it is ultimate truth that will save people from what they naturally desire, which is separation from God. That's how Jesus fulfills this. There was this other piece that I loved about this. I kept coming back to this reaping in the harvest, right? And I was reading through the Proverbs this week, and I came across a proverb that just, like, I don't know, it said something to me. So I'm going to really hope that I can explain this well, okay? So hopefully you guys can follow along with me. There is a proverb that says, a ruler who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain that leaves no crops. And my mind automatically went to Jesus, I said, okay, let's contrast that. If a bad ruler doesn't leave anything for the poor, like that, that's oppressing them, that's bad, that's not a good thing. So how is Jesus doing the opposite? Well, what does Jesus tell us? He is a good ruler and he is leaving the reaping of the harvest to who? Us. He is allowing us to see the joy and the benefits of reaping that harvest. It is a joy to be able to see somebody come to Christ. That should be something that's like overflowing and like pouring out of us. In Luke 15, it says the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. Like think about what it looks like for us. That labor, that intense, like Jesus loves you. I see that you are struggling with this in your life and I get it, that stinks, but there is something better. And to see that moment where they turn and they flip, that is something that we get to participate in and something that is a joy for us. And Jesus is a good ruler who is leaving crops there for us to reap in that harvest, that fruit. We are the fruit of somebody else's reaping. I have people in my life that I can look back to and say, thank you, Jesus, for putting them in my life to speak the words of truth that you gave them the boldness to do through the Spirit to call me of my sin and move me out of that into a life that is focused on Christ. Too often we put that emphasis on the Spirit just naturally speaking to somebody. I'm not going to say that that can't happen. The Spirit can do what the Spirit wills. But the Spirit is given to us to embolden us to become the preachers of the gospel. When Saul became Paul, yes, right? I freak out there for a second. Um, when he became Paul, he did not just go, man, the Spirit spoke to me. So now I'm just going to like, hopefully you have your road to Damascus moment where you're just blinded by Jesus. He didn't leave it at that. He went and started telling people right? So how does Jesus naturally, or how's Jesus the hero? Well, I think one of the things that he shares too is that Jesus gave the disciples the great commission when he left. And that is not just for them, it's for us. And if we look at this, we said, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then I love this part because I feel like this is a part that we don't like to hear. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus is saying, when you teach people and you are discipling people, 
Teach them about the things I said. There is a right and a wrong. That's okay. This is not language arts class where you get to just kind of like add fluff to your paper. This is math. Black and white answers. Right and wrong. Teach them to obey or observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. Jesus is saying, listen, you get to have this boldness because I am here with you. The disciples, when, when John has this and he accounts this, he is essentially showing us that you can do what Jesus did here on earth in spreading the gospel. All authority has been given to Jesus and he is passing it over to you in the sense of that you have every right to go and say and proclaim who he is and what he did and what he is calling you to. And if you don't believe me, let's go to Mark. Now after that, John was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. And what does he say to do? Repent and believe. We do not convince people the other way around. Believe in Jesus. Oh, by the way, he wants you to walk away from your sin. No. See the depravity of your sins. See what separates you from Christ. See that you are not happy in the situation that you're in. Why are you always chasing that promotion? Why do you always want the next big job? Why are you, you know, buying new cars every two years? Something is missing. That hole that, that needs to be filled with the joy of Christ, you're trying to jam in other things into there. Repent of that. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of your desire to put anything above Christ and then come to him. See, and he will continue to give you that power to be able to sustain that repentance, right? You have to make, when Jesus calls you, he's calling you to turn an about face from what you are living in, what you are desiring, what you are hoping for, to see him as more beautiful. And so I really think that that gets us, how does that empower me to obey what this means, what this says? Uh, Brothers and sisters, I think that we've already really talked about this. I think that we can see it clearly. Jesus has given us uh, the spirit living in us to have a passion, to have a desire, to want to share his love and his commands with the world. We cannot live out of fear about what people are going to say to us or what people are going to think about us. Your view might be a little different than mine. That's okay. Jesus showed us, no, if you're missing the whole picture, you're not not getting the picture. Right? With the Samaritan woman, she's like, I get there's a Savior. I get he's coming. And Jesus is like, yeah, but you don't get the whole picture. That's why you're missing me. We don't get to speak half-truths into situations and hope that God fills in the rest of the blanks. That's not what he's left us here for. He has left us here to speak and proclaim who he is so that we get to see the joy of what it looks like to reap in that harvest. And I'm telling you right now, if you were sitting in this room and you are one that does not share their faith on a constant basis, calling people to repentance, it only gets harder and harder and harder to do that. And if you are here justifying that the spirit will move, whether I speak or not, I ask you, repent, please, in this moment. God gave you a task. 
He asked you to do something. He commanded you to do something. Go and make disciples. You do not get to sit on your keister and hope that the field and the wheat just somehow gets harvested. That's not what Jesus came here for, and he brought us to salvation. And, I mean, if that was the ultimate goal, he just would have taken us right away, and then we just would have been up in heaven now. So that wasn't his goal, and that wasn't his aim. His aim was to see people come to Christ and for us to experience in the joy of seeing what comes through that fruit of the harvest. Just like people before us have labored and we are the fruits of those labors. If you are here and you're a believer, you're the fruit of somebody's labor. First, thank God for the, those people who worked. And second, don't make their work in vain. Continue on. Continue to push in the way that Christ calls us to. And I will tell you right now, you will find more joy in that than you will ever find in any video game any food. I know it's hard to believe. Chicken wings, right, Christian? Better than chicken wings. Sorry, we, we got to introduce Christian to our favorite chicken wing place, and you get to experience something close to God when you eat those chicken wings. But even better is sharing your faith and seeing somebody come to Christ. One sinner who is repenting and coming back to Christ is worth rejoicing over. And if that is your life's mission, if you never get a promotion, if you work a minimum wage job the rest of your life, you have been successful. Everything here will fade. We won't be remembered in a few generations. But what will be remembered is that our families are turning to Christ and generations are saved because we are willing to reap the harvest when it is there for us because Jesus did the work. Let us not skirt our responsibilities to preach the gospel, to teach people to obey his commands. Remember that they go hand in hand. It's not just about his love. It's about our depravity, our separation from Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you so much for your saving work on the cross. Father, we thank you that you were willing to send your son, Jesus, to die for our sins. But not only to die for our sins, Father, we thank you for his life, the life that he lived, which pointed out things that were blocking us from fully understanding and, and joining in that joy of serving you. Father, when we think about the law, we think about the restrictions, we think about all the things that push down on us, that make it hard for us to follow. But Father, that they were meant to show us our complete depravity, our complete separation from you. And Father, we thank you for Jesus' redeeming work, his life. We gotta remember, Father, that, that, that Jesus' life is so important because he showed us and taught us what it looks like to be a disciple, somebody who is willing to follow everything that the Father says, even to death. And Father, we thank you for the boldness of Jesus that he was willing to push away crowds if it meant that he was to speak the truth. Father, let us be so bold that we are not worried about what people think of us, that we are not worried about, um, you know, Father, I dare I even say getting fired from our jobs because we are so we are so excited 
to say who you are and what you've done for us in our lives. Father, let us be bold in our speech to one another. Father, this is why you gave us discipline in the church so that we can come to each other with with areas of growth, of areas that we see sin creeping in in our lives. And Father, let us be joyful in the desire to attack that, to not want to skirt those situations, but Father, to want to make ourselves more holy and present before you. And Father, thank you for your spirit that you sent to us to embolden us, to empower us, to be able to live lives that reflect your glory. Father, that you are transferring us from one degree of holy to another. And Father, we thank you for your apostle John and his writing in this book that gives us even more uh, to go on and more to see in your richness that we may believe that you are who you said you are. Father, that you are the redeemer and the savior, Father, who came to call us to repentance and to believe in him and love him with our whole hearts. So, Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.